when were the... What schools... Who decides what the next... Where's that story? Why they keep the loop? What is this? It's Curious City. Where WBEZ answers your questions... About Chicago, the region, and its people. Curious City gets most of its questions from people in Chicago. But here's one all the way from Seattle, from John Gardner. John loves trains. He's planning a train ride to Chicago this summer. And he likes to imagine making the same train ride in the past. If you were a vacationer to Chicago in 1910, what attractions would you visit? Uh, Which of them are lost to time and which of them still remain today? I'm journalist Robert Lowerzell, and I'll be your guide on a trip through 1910 Chicago. I'll have highlights of what drew tourists, from cheap day trips to African-American entertainment to the seedier side of the city. To have the most fun with John's thought experiment, think about this. What do you tell friends and family to do when they visit Chicago? According to the Tribune back in 1910, this was the typical way Chicagoans greeted out-of-town friends when they showed up for a visit. Hello! Glad to see you! Have some lunch and then we'll go out to the stockyards and see how swift armor can kill hogs. Uh, yeah, the city's most famous tourist attraction was the Union Stockyards, where millions of cattle and hogs were slaughtered every year. Hog slaughtering was 1910's Buckingham Fountain, if you will. But at the same time, people like city planner Daniel Burnham and the Association of Commerce were promoting a cultured sort of tourism. They urged visitors to see the Art Institute, Orchestra Hall, and Lincoln Park Zoo. One commerce official said, We show them the city beautiful. We take them by the hand and lead them out to pastures green, the parks and boulevards, and say to them, This, too, is part of Chicago. All is not hustle and bustle here. But hustle and bustle prevailed at Chicago's six train stations. 1,600 passenger trains arrived or departed every day. A million and a half people came every summer. Many visitors came from small Midwestern towns lured by bargain train fares. Some of the small town folks had never seen so many tall buildings before. So they might pay 25 cents for a view from the observation tower in the auditorium building, one of Chicago's tallest buildings in 1910. You get a panoramic view of the city and Lake Michigan. Here's Julia Backrack, the Chicago Park District's historian. The summers were extremely hot, and people raved about Lake Michigan and how they thought of it as an ocean. And that we still get that from visitors today. People who had never been here before are completely blown away. This was 10 years after the Chicago River was reversed. So Lake Michigan wasn't polluted with sewage like it was before. By 1910, more people were swimming in it. For scenic views of the lake, tourists could take a guided tour on Lakeshore Drive, riding on an open-air omnibus. Rides cost 50 cents. That would be $12 in today's money. In July 1910, the Tribune quoted a driver named Tom Butler, who was taking some tourists out for a spin on one of these rubberneck wagons. We're now on Lakeshore Drive, the city's most famous residence thoroughfare. To the right off there near the lake is what is known as Streeterville. Over here on your left is the Mrs. Potter Palmer Castle. It takes money to live on the drive. I'm now going to take you over here a block or two where I have a friend who just opened a new saloon. 
If you folks watch the wagon for a minute, I'll hoist a fresh one. That was just one of several saloons where he stopped. His passengers decided it wasn't safe to continue their trip with Butler at the wheel, so they got off in Lincoln Park. According to the Tribune, Lincoln Park was becoming the city's most popular spot for tourists. So many tales have been told of its beauty and charm that it is difficult to find anybody within 500 miles of the city who has not heard of it. On the south side, Jackson Park drew tourists with its landscapes and lagoons. Historian Julia Backrack says visitors also flocked to the west side's new Garfield Park Conservatory. It was promoted as the largest indoor plant collection in the world. Jens Jensen, the great naturalistic landscape architect, had designed it. A couple of the rooms had these lagoons as a centerpiece, and so there was actually water in the room. And, of course, he's famous for his use of stone, and so there would be these waterfalls, particularly in the fern room, and they'd see this waterfall, and they said, oh, my gosh, how did they do this? How did they build a structure around a waterfall? And, of course, it wasn't natural at all. Now, what if you were an African-American visiting Chicago? In 1910, the Great Migration of Blacks from the South hadn't yet begun. But Chicago had 44,000 African-American residents, and it was attracting black visitors. Uh, the Chicago Defenders circulated widely. Uh, Pullman porters, uh, people who worked on trains, would travel from Chicago south down to New Orleans and other places, and they would tell stories about how amazing Chicago was, and that would excite the imagination of people who wanted to come or move to the city. That's Harvey Young. He's chair of the theater department at Northwestern University, and he's also a professor of African-American studies. For one thing, he says, African-Americans went to the same parks we just talked about. Even though Chicago was segregated residentially, the Art Institute and public parks were officially open to everybody. Usually, all was peaceful. But Young says black people had to be on their guard. If you're one of a couple of brown-complexioned people, you know, in, in Grand Park or Lincoln Park, and there's thousands of people um, who are not sharing that same complexion, then you might be a bit more vigilant, right? I mean, we know that there was a fair amount of violence that existed, um, that a, a person just crossing into the wrong neighborhood could be attacked. But Young says there's one place black tourists made sure to visit in 1910 the Pekin Theater at State Street and 27th. It was the country's first major black-owned theater. And it was founded by Robert Motts, who was a gambler, <laughs> but he was also a person who was passionate about theater and the arts. The best black entertainers traveling across the country would stop at the Pekin. You could have an amazing meal, lobster and fine wine and drinks and champagne there. The Pekin offered ragtime and opera music, but it also featured plays, silent movies, and an amazing trained monkey called Consul the Great. When heavyweight champion Jack Johnson would fight somewhere else in the country, telegrams describing those boxing matches round by round were read aloud on the Pekin stage. Here's what African-American vaudeville star Sherman Dudley said after a night at the Pekin. I have never felt so proud of being a colored man. The entertainment was a revolution and showed just what Negroes can and must do in the near future. In 1910, the stretch of State Street from 26th Street to 35th was becoming an entertainment district called The Stroll. The Pekin Theater and the rest of The Stroll catered to mostly black audiences. But Young says some whites came, too. 
there was a desire to experience uh, this energy that was being created not only by the people who lived on the South Side, but also this influx of, of black migrants from the South. It was exciting. You know, there was a buzz for people to come in and be in an, in an environment that was unlike their own. The Peak Inn closed in 1911, but the stroll lasted for years, turning into a scene for a new style of music called jazz. Finally, here's one more sort of visitor to consider. To use a modern term, they were sex tourists. Every night, thousands of men from out of town went to a part of Chicago called the Levee. It wasn't in the guidebooks, and it definitely wasn't an example of what Daniel Burnham called the city beautiful. Now, one thing we should explain, there was no actual levee holding back floodwater. In 1910, a levee was slang for a red light district. Chicago's was on the south side and near west side. Here's how Charles Washburn, who was a local reporter at the time, described it. Noise blared from the pianos. The red lights gleamed. Men, young and middle-aged, reeled from saloon to body house. Girls led their customers from the dance halls to the ever-ready hotels. The most famous brothel was the Everly Sisters Club on Dearborn near 21st Street. Because what they decided to do was make the most fantastic, beautiful, luxurious brothel that had ever been seen in the world. This is Ken Melvoinberg, who leads Weird Chicago's guided tours of the former levee. There was a gold-plated piano. The spittoons were made out of gold. They actually released um, hundreds of live butterflies. It was not designed as a brothel for the common man or the clerk, but it was more for the people that had checkbooks, which were captains of industry, wealthy people. Melvoinberg says most of the brothels were way scuzzier than the Everly Club. These places had lookouts who'd watch for police and recruit customers. Hey, Mac, what are you doing? Welcome to the Levy District. You looking for some action? This is the place to go. We got gambling. We got beer. We got stuff behind the counter. And we got women. He says most of the Levy's sex workers were in a bad situation. The majority of them, this was against their will, you know, what they were doing. And they were addicted to drugs. Um, and they were, they were literally stalls that were right next to each other, just like a horse stall. People have been complaining about these conditions for years. The outrage got loud enough that city officials shut down the levee in 1912. So, if you had a time machine and you could go back to 1910, what would you see? John Gardner, who asked the question that prompted this story, says he'd take a tour of the stockyards, even though he's a vegetarian. Too bad the stockyards shut down in 1971. But this summer, he hopes to see some of the same things tourists saw in 1910 the Garfield Park Conservatory, the landscape parks, the old skyscrapers. In fact, as time goes on, as you tell me more and more facts, I just find myself more and more desperate to get there. That's all the time we have for this tour of Chicago in 1910, but there's so much more to see. The Blackstone Hotel, the White City Amusement Park, Hinky Dink Kenna's Saloons. You can see vintage postcards and read more online at wbez.org slash curiouscity. Reporting for the story came from me, Robert Lowerzell. Special thanks to Ty Fanning and Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Support comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. Curious City is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been following their curiosity and have been committed to brewing beers for Chicago that are celebrated worldwide by beer critics and beer lovers alike. More at GooseIsland.com. We don't need to be the only beer you drink. 
We just want to be the best you drink. Next time on WBEZ's Curious City, the bell tolls for thee. But who tolls Chicago's bells? More often than you think, actual people. When you're pulling on a rope and you can feel the contraption, you can feel the weight, it's kind of a combination of power and grace. Take a tour of Chicago's bell towers. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City.